What up, what up, what up, Canes fans? This is Better Duck. This is the Better Canes podcast. We got, what, three bye weeks in a row or something? This is crazy. I wasn't going to podcast about a damn bye week. But I wanted to jump on. Just wanted to get a little something going. We're going to do a little special episode today. Let's, uh... They've got some congratulating to do, though, first. First, I want to congratulate... My boy Jordan, I'm getting married. That's a huge accomplishment. Gorgeous bride. Proud of you, buddy. That is really something special. And his partner also has huge news. Marshall. The Marshman has got a radio gig, a media gig down here in South Florida with Toast of the Orange Bowl boys. They have combined forces. They're on onside radio. Get the app, download the app, figure out how to listen to this thing. You got to support the local guys that are creating content because we've been left in the dirt by terrestrial radio, particularly Intercom. I don't want to burn any bridges for any of the guys in this town. God knows that things may change. It's a very fluid industry, but Intercom, no fan of South Florida. They have left us on... With nothing on the weekends. No local hosts on the weekends. They've got Greenberg on during the week after Lebetard, I guess. That's like when I'm drinking my coffee. I don't listen to that. I, I, I go listen to Screeching Hillary and Geldy over on 790. And I'm a big radio guy, but I'm also a big podcast guy. And I'll also figure out how to listen to uh, Marsh and Toast on their new show. It's 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. weekdays on side radio. Dono is also on there. I think he does a one o'clock. Maybe, I don't know. You follow everybody on Twitter, figure it out. Follow Marsh, follow Toast, follow Dono. These guys are are, um, promoting themselves. We got to support the local guys here that are talking about local stuff because pretty soon it's going to be all ESPN radio and all they're going to do is talk about New York teams and Dallas. That's it. Then we'll talk about the Canes and we'll talk about the Dolphins. So support the guys. All right. This episode was inspired by another good follow. You got to follow him. This is Portland Kane, PDX Kane. His handle, his Twitter is at Portland Kane, P-O-R-T-L-A-N-D-C-A-N-E, like Portland, Oregon, or Portland, Maine. And he did a Mount Rushmore of wrestlers that I had to chime in on. And there's been a couple, there's some, been some Mount Rushmore's floating around. Best tag team, top four wrestlers, top four tag teams. I chimed in on both of them. And I'm particularly old school. I got to admit, I didn't really watch wrestling past 1990. I know a lot of you probably weren't even born then yet. So I didn't do the whole Undertaker, which I know is a big deal for you guys. And I respect that. I never really watched Undertaker. I've never really watched any wrestling at all until uh, I haven't watched any since 1990 or maybe even before maybe I don't know 89 somewhere around there I never watched The Rock I never watched Stone Cold I never watched any of those like smaller gymnast dudes that do like triple flips and uh, you know flying crabs and all this stuff so what I want to do is I want to explain a little bit how I followed wrestling in the early days when I was a kid. Uh, 
and some funny wrestling stories that I have because we were pretty big into wrestling and you'll hear we've gotten into it with some wrestlers and gotten into some unique situations with wrestlers and with the Undertaker retiring and some other stuff. I just thought it'd be pretty cool to take a little trip back memory lane with Retlin, as you guys call it, wrestling. And just going to have a couple of beers and tell some stories here. Get my mind off Tua. So, okay, those of you that are my age or even older, that grew up in South Florida, we grew up on championship wrestling from Florida. Florida championship wrestling, well, whatever it was. It was Florida territory, Florida and Georgia. The big dog was Gordon Soley. Gordon Soley here. We've got the Briscoe brothers are going against... The Wyndhams, led by their father, Black Jack Mulligan. And it was a really small production. These shows were shot in a tiny studio. I don't even know where. I'm guessing Tampa, maybe Atlanta, maybe Orlando. But it was nothing like the productions that you guys get now from WWE. (laughs) I mean, these things were not even in high school gymnasiums. They were like in small sound stages where they just had a very echoey ring that you could hear the boards bouncing on it when guys jumped up and down. And the audio for the promos and stuff was particularly boomy and echoey because they were just in like a square box of a room, like a warehouse or, um, or something like that. Also growing up in South Florida, unlike people from the north and unlike nerds from nowadays that don't ever leave the house, when I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, like you woke up, you were out of the house. You got on your bike. You went with the neighborhood kids. You were doing stuff. It, like we weren't playing board games and we weren't watching hours and hours of cartoons. Yes, there were nerds who stayed in and watched Saturday morning cartoons. But for the most part, you know, you woke up seven or eight o'clock. You had quick breakfast and you're on your bike and you were gone or you had organized sports. So I think basketball and football both played early games on some Saturdays. So you either had really nothing to do or you had a game scheduled. Little League football, Little League baseball. And then afterwards, you came home, you know, like 11 or 12 for lunch and wrestling was on. Championship wrestling from Florida. I know the diehards are going to get me for, for getting the name wrong. I should probably look it up. But anyway, I don't know. You've probably seen stuff. The younger guys have probably seen stuff on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff on there. It's grainy. It's bad television like you know it's standard deaf and the one thing we had going for us in the south were the promos where you know the wrestler stands there looking directly down the lens of the camera and challenges the other wrestler for the following weekend in whatever auditorium across florida or georgia they were going to be wrestling at and that really grew down here we weren't so much or i wasn't so much and i think the the wrestling federation itself, they weren't so much concerned with in-ring wrestling as they are now with this, you know, super scripted um, ups and downs and back and forths of a match. And there were far less moves and the guys were far less athletic for the most part. You know, there were a couple of guys, but for the most part, these were just big dudes that probably drank and partied and they didn't have the best cardio. They probably didn't have the best 
medical care. I'm sure there were a lot of meniscuses and busted knees. Let me get rid of that. Always with the alerts. So what you ended up with is wrestlers that were better at talking than they were at wrestling, which was fine. Like in a lot of ways, um, that's where Hulk Hogan came from. I could be wrong. I'm not a wrestling expert. But I think his camera skills, his promo skills and trash talking far exceeded his actual wrestling ability, which wasn't all that great, especially compared to some of the guys now that can just do aerobatics and stuff off top ropes and all kinds of things that dudes just weren't doing back then. Right, and this is this is long before this is a solid ten years before Hogan even came on the scene. I I knew we would get WWF wrestling. I, I don't remember when. Maybe it was Friday nights on a weird cable channel, and it was still of even a more primitive form of of the wrestling that people are used to now. There, there, but there was, I think, with the Northern wrestling, with the WWF and stuff, there was more of an emphasis on the in-ring wrestling and slightly less on the promos. But getting back to Florida wrestling and the promos. So you had your guys from Florida and Georgia and probably the two best you know, of all time, three, three or four guys. You've got Dusty Rhodes, who was incredible on camera, incredible with the promos and looking down the, the barrel of the lens. And I guess his crossover, I'm not sure when he appeared down here because I know he came from the Midwest, but then we would also get Ric Flair trash talking. And I'm, I might be messing up the ears, but you, you also had the Funks. Terry Funk is amazing promos on wrestling. Some of his trash talking, some of his promos, look them up on YouTube. They're insane. And you had guys like Kevin Sullivan and Blackjack Mulligan and Wahoo McDaniel. And some were better wrestlers. Like I said, some of these guys were older, already older and still wrestling. And by older, I mean probably, you know, late 30s, 40s. It's a tough life. They weren't handing out those Vince McMahon contracts back then. These guys were working hand to mouth, you know, six, seven nights a week in their cars driving together, carpooling from city to city, wrestling in little thousand-seat venues. And it was a tough life. And there was a lot of drinking and probably a lot of drugs. So I'm going to say maybe eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. We were still riding our bikes. It could have been ninth grade. Anyway, they had wrestling at Holiday Park in Fort Lauderdale, in downtown Fort Lauderdale. And Holiday Park is where War Memorial Auditorium is. And they had a lot of wrestling there. But they did this wrestling that came to town. They weren't ready for War Memorial, which is an actual venue. There's an indoor basketball gym at Holiday Park. And that was to be converted into a wrestling ring. And, a, you know, a wrestling forum. So I remember we got out of school, whatever, 3.30, got home. And we quickly rode our bicycles over to Holiday Park which is where we played baseball, played football, played tennis, grew up. It was the destination for all the kids that grew up on the east side of Fort Lauderdale. Pretty much all went to Holiday Park. And it's world famous because it was the tennis mecca in the 70s. That's where Chris Everett came from. That's where Jennifer Capriotti came from. And it was a pretty well-known place. It's, you know, tennis isn't as hot as it is 
now than it was then, but Holiday Park was a pretty big deal. So we get to wrestling, and they've got paper on the windows, so you can't see in, right? And there's only, you know, however many doors to get in the place, and it's a basketball gym, so there's no ground-level windows or anything. But I could see through the crack of the paper on the glass doors that the wrestlers themselves were putting the ring together. And that was kind of a blow to me. That was a, um, I was disappointed because I remember, I've, I won't remember any of the wrestlers' names because it was, this was really small time wrestling. But I remember one of the guys had sort of the million dollar man shtick. The, you know, British guy that wears tuxedos or whatever and has more money and has a butler and all that stuff. Well, when I saw him putting together the ring and like tightening turnbuckles and stuff, I was crushed because I was like, dude, I thought that guy was supposed to be a millionaire. Now he's in there putting the ring together like something's not adding up here. So we went home. We ate. I think the card was probably, you know, seven o'clock. The place probably held under a thousand people. I'm not good with that stuff. Maybe 500, maybe 1,000. But it was nuts. It was all kids. It was all kids from the middle school and the neighborhood and everything. And the wrestling um, was pretty crazy. Everybody was screaming. Everybody was yelling. It was in a tiny little venue. And they had one hot dog vendor who had, like, you know, the traditional hot dog cart inside the gym. And, you know, like an igloo cooler selling Cokes, this is before bottled water, selling Cokes and hot dogs and chips. Well, with just one guy and like 50 kids trying to get hot dogs, it became pandemonium. So something happened and like the guy was only dealing with adults. Like he was only taking orders from adults that had their money out and stuff and he wasn't taking orders from kids. So my buddy, I'm not going to mention his name, but some of you can guess who it is. His father was a, a hothead, tough guy, gets into an argument in the middle of the wrestling um, card with the hot dog vendor. And they're exchanging profanities and everything in front of the kids. And the next thing you know is my buddy's dad, he's got him. He's got him around the neck and he's like throwing him around, punching him in the face. The cops came, they broke the whole thing up, went back to watching wrestling. But I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty crazy considering, you know, Mr. What's-His-Name just beat up the hot dog vendor. So we waited out back, and I think I got the wrestling card signed. I'm pretty sure Wahoo McDaniel wrestled that night because for a while I had a signed Wahoo McDaniel card, and I'm pretty sure it was from that night. So we got really into wrestling then. You know, it's like the early 80s, maybe 80, 1980, 1981. Wrestling was just starting to bubble nationally. We were into our local guys, our Florida guys, guys out of Tampa, Dusty Rhodes, the Funks, Kevin Sullivan, Briscoe. It was good. Um, it was good stuff. And then wrestling became big time. Right then, Hogan was in the Rocky movie, and he just exploded into the stratosphere, and WWF like just took over, and pretty much started stomping the local territories the local wrestling you know jobs during this time I was pretty obnoxious I can still be pretty obnoxious now so I don't know whether it was West Palm or Miami Night Center but whatever it was I was young maybe 14 years old and I was a little dude I was not 
you know, I'm a, I'm fat now, but back then I was, you know, five feet tall, 90 pounds, if. So I worked my way back towards the dressing rooms where they had, you know, um, standards with velvet ropes set up and stuff. So the wrestlers came out. It was nothing like WWF now that has a ramp and giant entrance and all that stuff. Guys just kind of came out of the dressing rooms and there were some ropes there. So I got and I could see into the dressing room area. I could see Andre the Giant back there, right? And I didn't like him. I, at the time, I did not like Andre at all. So I just started screaming, hey, Andre, 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 over and over and over loud until he finally looked and like did with his hands like what? Like, what do you want, kid? And I was like, hey, what drugs did your parents do to make you like that? You know, to make you like the way you are. He did not like that. Like his face turned and my friend was like, he's going to kill you. <laughs> I was like, no, no, he can't. Like there's, there's liability. He can't do nothing. And he started walking towards and like my heart stopped. I was like, what? Like, no, this guy, I'm not going to get, you know, thrown across a building by under the giant now. So we kind of just backed up back into the crowd. But that was the, um, my experience with, Andre the Giant. Fast forward like another year or two. My best friend, may he rest in peace. He was, you know, there was a group of us that were pretty tight. A bunch of them are no longer with us anymore. It makes me sad. But. My friend Chris, he was the spring training bat boy for the New York Yankees. For the Fort Lauderdale Yankees, you know, New York. And he was even smaller than me. He was a tiny dude. So he was able to be the bat boy for years. I'm talking like four or five years. He was a spring training bat boy for the New York Yankees. And that comes with a lot of perks. A lot of perks. I'm a hustler. Chris was a legendary hustler and knew how to uh, get stuff. He always had a player's car, whether it was Don Baylor or, you know, Winfield or any of those guys. All the, the Yankees all loved Chris and would let him borrow their cars or rental cars and this and that. So we found out they were going to have a big wrestling card at War Memorial Auditorium in Holiday Park, the big venue. A lot of Broward County schools have their graduations there. And that's a real venue with seats and stage and lighting and all that stuff. So during the midweek, we just went over to the War Memorial Auditorium and asked to speak to the manager, to the general manager of the place. And this guy comes out and he looks like the dude that would be the general manager of a place that hosts wrestling events. Like he looks kind of like a wrestler himself. He's got some very um, suspicious scars on his face. You can tell his nose has been busted a couple times and he comes out of the box office and it's like, what do you want? What do you kids want? What are you up to? And Chris, who could also talk really good, goes, how you doing? My name is Chris, and I'm the bat boy for the New York Yankees. And I want to know if there's any way I can trade you to get backstage at wrestling this Saturday night. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, yeah, I'm the bat boy for the Yankees. You want a signed you know, baseball bat? You want a you know, Ricky Henderson batting glove? Whatever you want, like I can get it for you. So the guy made a list of his demands. He knew the Yankees 
And um, he was like, you come here with that stuff, kid. And you guys get to meet all the wrestlers and hang out backstage and do whatever you want. So funny fact about Chris was the baseball players used to pay him hourly to sign autographs for them. Like he could do a pretty good impersonation of a bunch of their signatures, particularly Don Baylor, who I remember, you know, loved Chris and was like a father figure to him. And, you know, he'd pay Chris, whatever, $5 an hour, $10 an hour to uh, sign bats and balls. So Chris had those signatures down pat, at least close enough to fool people. Probably couldn't fool pros, you know, autograph collectors. But your average person that got something signed was like, oh, yeah, yeah, look at this. I got a Don Baylor bat. And um, we show up at the stuff. And the guy is like, I did not believe it. I thought you kids were full of shit. So he gave us two comp tickets and said, come here, you know, Saturday night. The thing starts at 8 o'clock. Come here early. I'll be here at the box office. And I'm like, we just got job. This guy is going to hose us. He's not going to be in that night or something, Chris. Like, it's too good to be true. So on the card that night was Flair, Dusty, Lex Luger, Rick Rude, Bob Roop, Kevin Sullivan, maybe Barry Windham, Kendall Windham. I forget, but it was a good card. So we get there. Saturday night, the big card. And the guy's there behind the box office. He recognizes us, comes right out, walks us into the venue. And then takes us right into the locker room, which is gross, <laughs> okay? Because it's not like being, you know, backstage at a Motley Crue concert or something. There is no backstage. There's basically a changing area and showers. And the wrestlers are all back there. And, like, going backstage is not for guys. That's a girl thing. Girls go backstage at concerts. People hook up girls with backstage tickets, like, nobody wants to see two 14-year-old boys backstage. Like, what the hell, what good can come of that? But we're awestruck, right? Like, we're, our eyes are wide open. I got a picture. We both got a picture with Flair, full blood. I would post it, but it's lost over the years because we used to take that photo. We got an 8x10 printed, and we would bring that photo with us everywhere and just kind of set it up as a prop. And over the years, you know, I'm talking, this is 30-something years ago, more the picture's gone somewhere i have pictures of us and luger and us and rick rude but i can't find them but anyway the wrestlers were all very cool so we're hanging out we're watching wrestling from backstage i'm pretty gabby chris could talk pretty good and you know we're more listening and just talking with the guys guys were asking where to go eat afterwards where a gas station was where nightclubs were that was that um you know we're going to be open later and everything and rick rude comes in and goes oh my god you're not going to believe this and the other wrestlers are like what he goes you remember the guy from tampa last week that was fucking busting my chops i just looked outside and he's in the parking lot again he's waiting by the backstage door so Chris was crazy. And Chris goes, like, let's go look. I want to see this guy that he's talking about. And Rick and Rude points out and he goes, see that guy right there? 
he goes, you know, there was a little, um, they had like barriers up or whatever, so the wrestlers could have a little area like to sign autographs and stuff and not get mobbed by people. And the guy was right there. He didn't go into the wrestling. He didn't go to watch the matches. He was perched out there in the parking lot waiting for the wrestlers to come out the back door, you know, where they sign autographs and shit. And Chris is like, what'd that guy do? And he goes, this guy just follows me from city to city, starting shit. Like, I just, I, I can't deal with him anymore. So we look over there, and it's a fat nerd, right? Of course. And he has a kid with him that's maybe 12, if. So Chris winks at Rick Rude, and he's like, we're going to take care of this. Don't worry about nothing. So Rick Rude is like, okay, little man. And my buddy Chris, he was tiny. He was a tiny little dude. We called him half because he was like half the size of the rest of us. And I wasn't a big dude. So wrestling concludes. Great night of wrestling. Got to hang out with, you know, friggin' Ric Flair and Lex Luger and meet those guys and talk about the Yankees and other stuff. And just as they're winding down, we're like, Chris is like, come on, let's get a head start and head out the back door. And see what's going on with this guy in Rude. So we open the back door and get swarmed with autograph kids. And I hear a kid. I immediately grab a pen and start signing like I'm somebody. And the kid goes, who are they? And I hear in the background go, they're nobodies. They're losers. (laughs) Which was the truth. Right? So we kind of just walked around the little barricades. And we get next to the dude and his son or his brother or acquaintance or whatever he was. And wrestlers come out and they sign a couple autographs and kind of run over to their cars. The wrestlers all drove themselves to the venue. And then the door opens and Rick Rude comes out. And that guy is on him like a chihuahua. Like, you son of a bitch, you're a fraud, you're this and that. My friend Chris rears back and punches the dude's son or his brother in the face and floors him. Which, he probably it's probably a bad move or whatever, but... They were the same size, even though there's probably a two or three year age difference. And then the guy freaks out and is like, you just hit so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And we look over and Rick Rude is dying, laughing his ass off and kind of jogging over to his car. Gets in his car and peels out. And I like following the car and the car does like a U-turn and goes back around the back of the building. And I'm like, Chris, Chris, that's Rick Rude's 280Z. Or whatever. He's back. Do you see him underneath that tree over there? Come on, let's go. So we run over there, and Rick Rude is dying laughing and gives Chris like 20 bucks and is like, dude, this is all the cash I have on me now. I wish I could buy you guys beers or whatever. That's like the best thing I've ever seen. That guy's been such a pain in my ass for, you know, the last couple of weeks or months or whatever. Thank you so much for punching that kid in the face. So that was our Rick Rude story. And it was... One I'll never forget, Chris passed away in 2002. I blame the movie Scarface for his death. If that movie had never been made, Chris would still be alive today. But being a little guy, he saw that movie, he, and it empowered him to kind of follow in those footsteps and end in those footsteps. So rest in peace, Chris. Another funny thing was we were in the Miami Arena. So this is before the AAA. 
watching wrestling. This is what kind of got me started today, talking with Portland Kane with Twittering him. Got me on the whole wrestling kick. I was fired up after doing my Mount Rushmore. So we go to see wrestling at the Miami Night Center. And it's a big card. It's a WWF card. You know, tickets are like, you know, 25 bucks now. You used, you know, you, go, you used to go to the local wrestling for like $2 or $5 or something. But now this is a real card. This is a 10,000 um, seat arena. And they got the real wrestlers there and everything. So I'm into it. You know me. I like making fun of goobers. And I like making fun of the awkward plain people. So when you go to wrestling... I mean, those people are, they are doofuses for the most part. Severe doofuses, right? Especially the adults. Kids, I'm not, I'm not talking about kids. Kids that are into wrestling under the age of 16, 18, you know, that's fine. Wrestling's awesome. But adults that are still big into going to wrestling, and I don't get it. But they're socially awkward people that wear, you know, loud t-shirts and stuff. So we're there, and it's a pretty good crowd. It's not totally sold out, but most of the seats are taken. So this particular fight, this particular match, was a Russian versus an American. And to flip the script, I think it was Nikolai Volkov. I think Portland Kane remembered that, but I'm not positive. Anyway, the Russian was the babyface, was the hero. And the American, in a, you know, in the twist of the storyline, was the heel. So the people were supposed to be, the crowd was supposed to predominantly be rooting for the Russian in this case and not the guy, you know, representing the United States. So when they came out to announce the wrestlers and they're like, you know, from Russia, so-and-so, everyone cheered. And they go, and from America. And you could hear like rumblings of booze when they announced the American. Well, I stood up on my seat and started chanting, USA, 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 loud and obnoxiously. To which the, everybody in my section like turned around mad and red-faced and looked at me like, sit down, like you're rooting for the wrong guy, asshole. Well, I don't, you know me, I don't stop. And especially once I have somebody's goat, I will just keep pushing. So I just kept it going until people ended up getting in my face and like telling me I needed to sit down and be quiet because Nikolai Volkov is a good man and whoever he was wrestling Magnum T.A. or somebody, it wasn't Magnum T.A., but similar, that he's an asshole and flaunts his wealth and, you know, all the problems that the uh, working class likes to throw in everybody's face about high society and, you know, wealthy people and all that stuff. The big earning gap that is a huge, back in the days, was a huge driving force behind wrestling. You know what I mean? Dusty Rhodes ended up owning his own federation. What did he own? The NWA or Florida Wrestling or whatever and played the poor working man. Hard times, hard times for Dusty. Yeah. Factory was closing down. People out of jobs. Meanwhile, Dusty owned the whole promotion and had Rolexes and Cadillacs and all that stuff too, but played up the role of being the working man's hero. And I had... Many uh, arguments with their wrestling fans, too. But anyway, so I've know I've, I know I've got the crowd going now with the USA chants and booing the Russian and all that stuff to the point that people are now getting in my face. 
to which somebody from the Miami Herald came over and introduced themselves and was like, hey, I'm so-and-so with the Herald covering this wrestling event. Like, you have really gotten people fired up in here. Like, what's your deal, man? Are you like a super wrestling fan? And I was like, no, I'm actually not. Like, I'm a mild wrestling fan. I watch. I know who everybody is. You know, this is the mid-'80s or whatever, mid to late-'80s. I go, but I'm not as crazy as these people. Like, I don't buy merchandise. Like, we just came, you know, for the night. I probably hadn't been to wrestling in a few years. And he was like, well, do you mind if we do a story on you and the lady, you know, that's so mad at you? And I was like, please do it. So the next morning, I got up and people were ringing my phone being like, dude, were you at wrestling last night? Like, there's a whole thing in the newspaper. There wasn't a picture or anything. But, my, you know, my name was in the story. And they were like, I can't believe it. Like, you almost started a riot at wrestling. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, that's the news. They're blowing it out of proportion. Crazed. And then probably one of the last... One of the last big wrestling things, you guys that are better with dates than I am, definitely watched WrestleMania 1 at my buddy's house with his family. Watched WrestleMania 2. And then in college, I forget what year I was, a sophomore maybe? Sophomore in college was when Hogan supposedly slammed Andre. And that's all pretty much the tail end of my wrestling life. That was a big event. I was disappointed that Hogan claimed a slam over Andre. And it would come back to rear its head. 20-something years later. When I get into shooting reality television. Right? And around... Mid-2000s, like 2005, there were just reality shows shooting everywhere. And I was on the top of the list to hire people to shoot their hit reality show because they wanted the people that shot the last hit. And me and a couple of buddies made like 10, 12 hits in a row. So our phones were constantly ringing. We want to hire you to shoot this reality show so (laughs) the show calls I know the girl that is the production manager that's calling and doing the hiring the line producer and I know what's going to happen I've already got my routine planned out and she's like hey doc hey chip how are you you know it's so and so here with pink sneakers productions and we'd like to check your availability to do a show with us in Miami Beach called Hogan Knows Best everybody's on it and she starts naming off names of people and other key positions on the production staff and i'm like i'm sorry but i have morals i can't i can't be on this one and she's like laughs and says what do you mean i said i refuse to be a part of a guy that's been living a lie his entire life and she's like what are you talking about oh because wrestling's fake and i was like no not because wrestling's fake i can deal with that I'm not dealing with a guy that believes that he slammed Andre. And I, I, give, I deliver it deadpan, right? No laugh, no giggle or nothing at the end. And there's silence. And she's like, what? And I go, yeah, I'm not, I can't be around somebody like that every day, knowing that that guy's living a lie, that he slammed Andre when he didn't. It was more like a scoop and dump. He did not slam Andre. So she's like, oh, okay. Um, oh, maybe next time, like talk to you later. 
And then the phone rings and it's the director and the director's like, Doc, what's going on? I'm like, nothing, what's up? He's like, I just talked to the line producer. You turned down the show? Like, dude, this is, you know, going to be 20 weeks of shooting in Miami Beach. It doesn't get any better. We're going to be staying at a mansion with the Hogans. I said, yeah, I'm not staying with the Hogans. Like, I'm with Andre. Even though we had the problem before with the whole what drugs did your parents do thing, I then became a huge fan of Andre. And there's no way I was doing it. So... Pretty, people pretty much accepted it. Now, I was on another hit show at the same time, a huge hit show. But I gave the excuse to everybody else that I wasn't doing it because I couldn't be, you know, supporting a guy that lives a lie that he slammed Andre when he didn't. God, wouldn't luck have it that we end up shooting and end up cross shooting our two shows are both on Washington Avenue in Miami Beach at the same time. And of course, the produ- everybody knows each other. So the producers get together and they're like, hey, why don't we you know, do a little crossover here where we get Hulk to be on your tattoo show and then your tattoo guys can cross over into the uh, Hogan Knows Best. And I'm like, yeah, it'll never happen. The network will never, they're on two different networks. The networks will never agree to it. And there's too much, too many contractual things, but let's shoot it. And <laughs> I get to do my whole routine. Then they bring Hogan into the tattoo shop and I'm like, I'm out, I'm done. And Hogan and his handlers look up and everybody's like, what, what's, what's, what's going on? I like take off my headset, my walkie talkie, you know, like Nick Saban after he loses. And I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm like about to, you know, help promote a guy that's been living a lie his whole life. And Hogan, who's like a really chill guy, like puts up his arms and is like, hey, brother, like, what's the problem here? I'm like, for one, you didn't slam Andre. And he looks at me like, dude, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, you're a grown man in his 30s? Worried about this? And I stormed out. I stormed right off the set and was like, you know, text me when... uh. When this guy's not on set no more. I can't believe all you guys are kissing the ass of a guy that's been living a lie his entire life and claim that he slammed Andre when he didn't. And a lot of my better duck shtick, as you can tell, comes from wrestling. Like some wrestlers that I really looked up to. Number one, like 80% of the influence on my better duck shtick that I do on Twitter is Roddy Piper. Like that's without a doubt. His Piper's Pit, his stand-ups, his promos and everything is such a huge influence on me that it's still, you know, to this day, 30-something years later, 40 years later, it's still like the major influence on my character personality. So do I have any? Oh, I do have one more wrestling story. We're going to wrap it up here. Going long, 39 minutes. This is going to end up being my longest podcast, solo podcast. It's just me here. You know, I'm doing the producing and the engineering on this. So if it doesn't sound too great or whatever, I know you guys heard me open that beer, you know, a minute ago. And we're going to tie it into the canes here. So I get a call from Jeff Solinger, son of legendary... Miami Hurricanes running back, special team coach, high school, Miami high school, head coach, two-time state champion, Donnie Solinger. His son, Jeff Solinger, I've talked to him before on podcasts. He's one of my best, dearest friends. 
He's a great dude, and he also works in television and film production, music videos, live TV, events, that type of stuff. And he has looked out for me sort of in a mentor role throughout my television career. He's gotten me some, like the trifecta, the big three of South Florida production jobs that he's gotten me, I've all gotten from Jeff Solinger, which I thank him all the time for. The big one being, he called me up and he's like, hey, what's your availability for the summer? And I'm like, for the summer? Like, you know, usually you get a job, it lasts a couple of weeks, or if it's a commercial, it lasts a couple of days, or if it's a music video, it lasts a day. But the goal is to get on a series, you know what I mean, that pays you for eight weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, whatever. And he's like, I'm working on a show right now. I can't talk about anything, but I just want to know your availability. It's going to be for TNT. It's with a huge star that played for the University of Miami. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, Jeff, what do you got? What's going on? And he's like, it's Dwayne Johnson. It's The Rock. I was like, yeah, I'm available. I'll quit whatever I have to do that. Like, what is it? And he's like, it's a, it's a unscripted reality series. It's called Wake Up Call for TNT. I think it was executive produced by a UM grad, too. And it's basically The Rock with six people that are down on their luck, and he's going to try to motivate them and pull some strings and do whatever it takes to get them back on their feet. And it was really a great series. It was really a good show because The Rock really cared about these people. It wasn't bullshit. You know, there were six people. There was a kid that had bounced around foster homes that wanted to... Uh, to be in MMA, to be in the UFC or to train MMA. So The Rock, you know, made it happen where we broke into the kid's house. We snuck into the kid's foster home at five in the morning while he was sleeping with The Rock and Dana White and woke the kid up, 15-year-old kid, woke him up in his bed with a spotlight. And the kid opened his eyes and looks and sees The Rock and Dana White. And The Rock goes, you want to train for the UFC? You think you're a fighter? You think you got what it takes? This is your wake-up call. And Dana White is like, I got a trainer right, in, right now. We're going to find out how tough you are. And that was the series. You know what I mean? Five different, six different stories of people that were down on their luck that needed a little bit of help, a little bit of cash, a little bit of motivation, a couple of doors open for them to get their life back on track. And it was amazing because Dwayne Johnson is the real deal. He is not a fraud. He's not a Hollywood dude. His entourage is deep. Yes, they have... Five motorhomes that they travel in, but his entourage is his family. And his manager is his ex-wife. And his other manager is his ex-brother-in-law. Like, he is still tight with his ex-wife. And he's the biggest box star in the world right now. And that was just huge. I mean, that was huge. And it doesn't get bigger in wrestling than that. Doing a hit TV series with The Rock for an entire summer. Probably the coolest thing we did, we ended up ambushing the head football coach of Mater Day High School in Hialeah and just walking with the rock, with a camera and a light, into the gymnasium during a pep rally to confront the head football coach that was morbidly obese. And that's as close as I'll ever feel to being a Beatle because when those exit doors opened up and the rock walked in first, into the high school while they're having the pep rally. 
the looks on those kids' faces, seeing The Rock march out to the middle of the basketball court and put his arm on that uh, on that head football coach who was probably 400 and something pounds and say, this is your wake-up call. I want to show you something. So he, they got in the car, and they drove the guy to a cemetery in Miami Lakes. And as we get closer, the guy can see there's a funeral happening. We're filming the guy. We're filming the rock, getting closer, getting closer. And the guy notices that all the people in attendance are his family and his friends. And they're lowering a coffin into the ground. And the guy goes, that's my wife. Like, those are my kids. That's my brother and my brother-in-law and everybody. And the rock has the guy's fully, full attention now. And he's like, you're getting a look at your future. Like, if you don't drop weight... This is what's going to happen. Like, you will be dead. And, you know, there's a lot of tears, a lot of crying. And Rock is incredibly motivational. And yeah, it's a TV show. So we stop and we start and there's lunch breaks and all kinds of stuff. So we're standing there and the production, the assistant director is trying to keep everything on schedule goes, we got to be on Fort Lauderdale Beach to a rooftop gym in whatever, 40 minutes. And we're in Miami Lakes, and there's traffic, and there's, you know, the 836 and all this. So the Miami Lakes cop, we had a bunch of cops there and everything. You know, you got to have security with the rock. And the cop goes, you got to get to Fort Lauderdale? And they're like, yeah, we're running a little bit late. Like this thing, lunch and everything cut into it. We didn't expect to still be at the cemetery this long. And he goes, Ted, is no problem. Let's go. So we get in a caravan. I'm in a mommy van with a driver. And there's probably 15 vans of us, plus The Rock has the five big tour buses that his crew rides in. We're in mommy vans. He's in tour buses. That's how it goes. And they give us a presidential-style motorcade from Miami Lake Cemetery all the way to Fort Lauderdale Beach where, you know, the cops all shoot ahead and exit, block the exits, block the, you know, the entrance ramps so nobody can get on. So we basically have the highway to ourselves and a full um, escort and made it in like 20-something minutes. I did some selfie videos and shot a little video and was like, you know, whatever. The day at the Mater Day High School was the closest I'll ever get to feeling like a Beatle. Well, right now is the closest I'm going to ever feel to being, you know, Obama. Like, I've please. Like a full presidential motorcade with them shutting down the streets and everything. And I'm like thinking in my mind, I'm like, these are Miami Lakes police that don't even give a shit. They just shut down the entrances in Hollywood and Davie. We're in Fort Lauderdale now. Now they're on, we're on Broward Boulevard. They're still running a full motorcade where there's no traffic with us. And we got there within, you know, 20, 25 minutes to where the guy started his workout with Jillian Michaels. Fantastic summer. One of the best summers ever. I think it was 2014. I did a show with The Rock. Like, it doesn't get bigger than that in wrestling, you know? And I just wanted to uh, tell some wrestling stories tonight. There's no Hurricanes football. I didn't want to get on here and go nuts about Tua and start complaining, you know, about what happened yesterday. Or Sunday, depending on whatever day you're listening to this thing. And that's it. Let me know on Twitter. 
if you've had any big wrestling moments, who you've met, who you've hung out with. What years you started watching wrestling? I'm sure some guys will correct my um, some of my details. I'd rather get the story out entertaining than have it be, you know, absolutely 100% factual. So maybe there are some errors in the dates or which wrestlers were with which promotions. But that's it. Follow me on Twitter at BetterDuck if you've never followed me on Twitter before. If you need me to follow you on Twitter, you do follow me or you don't follow me, but you want me to follow you, let me know. If you're blocked and you think that you shouldn't be blocked, get somebody to ask for an unblock. I'm reasonable. The election's over. I blocked and muted a lot of people during the election, not because I give a shit who you vote for or who you support. I just can't listen to the noise either way. It's just too much political stuff. So a whole bunch of people got blocked during the last stages of the election. That's it. Remember, listen to Toast and Marsh on Onside Radio. New show, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. They're talking sports. Get the app, get the download, figure out how to listen to it on your laptop or your iPhone. And support the local boys. Thanks for listening to the Better Canes podcast. I guess maybe I'll be back when the Canes play again in like a month.